Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 170th edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And uh, just a little change here. I, I've been asked, can we include the date of the recording? So uh, the date is the 1st of December 2023. It's freezing cold outside here in the north. Um, and I'm really delighted to say uh, Sir David Carter uh, ha has come back to join us. Hello, David. Good morning, guys. Lovely to be with you. It's, it's pretty cold down here as well. Very frosty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, David was with us um, in September 2022, and uh, we're delighted to to have him back. And uh, we'll sort of crack on with things, I suppose. But um, perhaps the first thing to do, though, David, there may be one or two people who are not familiar with who you are and what you've done. So can you give a little summary of that so that everyone's yeah, sure. up to speed with things? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the invitation again. It's, uh, I, I really enjoy listening to the podcasts. Um, yeah, so I started teaching in 1982. Uh, I did a music degree, um, taught music for many, many years, carried on being a music teacher, even when I became a head. I was a head in Gloucestershire. Um, first, my first headship in 1996, I think it was. Then I moved into Bristol um, to, to be head of uh, John Cabot City Technology College. And then from there, we eventually set up the Cabot Learning Federation Multi-Academy Trust, which was, I think I'm right in saying, the first one in the Southwest. And we did that, did that for about eight or nine years. And then um, became the Southwest Regional Schools Commissioner and then uh, latterly the National Schools Commissioner, which I left the DFE in the summer of 2018. Um, and for the past four years, four or five years, have been supporting trusts across the country, coaching and helping CEOs, but also doing things outside of education. Going back to my first love of music, um, uh, I'm a trustee at Centrepoint, which is a fantastic charity, very close to my heart. And um, nowadays, you know, we've got a lovely balance between a bit of work and, and a bit of play, which is which is how I always intended it should be. <laughs> <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Well, it's great to have you back. Um, Stan. What's caught your eye this week? Well, excuse me, Coffee. The uh, the Elgin marbles of the thing, or the Elgin marbles, as our Secretary of State called them this <laughs> week, um, has caught my eye. One, because it seems to be you don't need to get in a diplomatic row over something as simple as saying we've not changed our view on those, full stop. Uh, uh, but also it made me think about, you know, are they ours? Are they part of British culture, as as uh, they've been suggested? And then, do we need to have the real things, or could we have copies? Could we have facsimiles? Could we have plaster? But originally, the idea was that they would they would make plaster casts of of the uh, marbles, and we would we would bring in plaster casts. Uh, but um, in some very dubious dealings, it, it would appear. <laughs> the Ottomans, who, who ruled uh, Athens at the time, gave permission, although nobody's been able to find a record of the permission, uh, to, for these things to be taken from the, the Acropolis and um, the Parthenon and, well, originally taken to Malta and then to, the, to Britain, to, to actually to form a private museum, which is interesting. Oh, right. And it was only a costly divorce that meant he sold them to the British Museum. <laughs> it's funny because I know that the Prime Minister um, was didn't meet with the Greek Prime Minister um, because I think this was, the, the, the suggestion is that this was at the heart of it, you know. And actually, it did just bring it back to schooling. It, it reminded, it triggered a sort of thought in my head about: isn't this the meeting that you don't really want to have with a parent? You know, and actually, you know, you're going to have to front it 
you know you, 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 you know that feeling when you're walking down the corridor and you think this this could this could go either way but actually what you can't do is say oh well I, I'm not going to meet you now <laughs> and just turn around and walk walk the other way leaving in effect the the parent in the room you know I mean I think or even worse say to your deputy head you take the meeting that's eventually what happened wasn't it? He was yeah. now, come on. now let me ask has anybody done that <laughs> Uh, Never. No, I, don't no, think. No. I, I think staff look at you though don't they they know what's going on I remember when I took on my second headship there was a parent who was uh, he had a bit of a reputation and what and I was sitting in the staff room and I remember uh, the secretary coming and saying, oh, Mrs whatever is there and uh, all the staff said oh we'll be watching we'll be watching mm-hmm. and, I, and for me I'd only just really been appointed that was I think a critical meeting, you know, you can do all these fancy staff meetings. You can have the most amazing curriculum, but confidence from the staff came yeah. following that meeting, that one little meeting. Um, and this they, is- they want the staff want to know that you've got their backs. And, and I think yeah. that's, you, you, you always do, but sometimes that's done very invisibly. If few people ever see it because it affects them. But actually when you, when you front up with an aggressive parent or you deal with a really tricky situation or something that's gone wrong and how you handle that publicly, I think that's how you, how you, you know, you, you, you get that, that level of support from people because they take the view, well, if he's that good in this crisis, how good will he be when things are calm? And I, I think, I think you're spot on about that. And I think that's the, that's the bit that, that, that for me undermines the prime minister's leadership because time and time again when the going gets tough he gets a bit petulant he gets a bit tetchy gets a bit cross like how dare you talk to me like that and you know you if, if you took that into a meeting with a difficult parent in reception i've got a pretty good idea how quickly that would end <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i think those are the meetings that you, if you know in advance you've planned the conversation several times the night before and it never goes the way you planned or you plan to be at a meeting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i'm just thinking things like you know, and she'll probably say this and i'll be able to say this and it, it never it never goes like that it, no never but more often than not, they're, they're not. I mean, I, I, I do. Um, I can reflect on times like that, Stan. But more often than not, they're not as bad as you think they're going to be. Oh, yeah, I um, agree. You know that. But I, I suppose preparing yourself for the worst is probably the best, the best way to deal with it. But sometimes it's a good way, isn't it? You have a meeting that you think is going to be okay, and you and you and there's no red red flags coming at you, and you and suddenly halfway through the meeting, you're thinking. This is like quicksand. This is slipping away from me. I didn't think I was. Why? How's this happened? Yeah, I've had that one. And those are the ones that stick with you, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, you just hope that there's no. I mean, I have to say, I only, I, I can only remember one event, and I'm embarrassed by this, where I actually lost my temper. I think with a parent, and unfortunately, it wasn't in the office. It was in a corridor. And it was at the beginning of school. So there were lots of parents around, you know. And I do remember um, a teacher, um, not, not a very senior teacher, but um, just ushering me into the into my office, which, and it was all done, you know, just with a hand, you know, just on the back, you know. And I yeah. thought, oh, yeah, you know, I, I shouldn't have done that. Um, but actually, I'm glad that somebody took control of the situation, gave me a chance just to mm. down, reflect, you know, what am I trying to achieve here? Yeah. I was taught two techniques for for and the, a cup of tea, 
Um, yeah. or, or as the person who told me said, just go in the other room and rattle some cups and things around for a bit and give them a <laughs> chance to, to calm down. And the telephone one, which is brilliant, when you get somebody really angry on the telephone and they blah, 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 just to say, I'm really sorry, I got called away from the phone then. Could you could you repeat what you <laughs> The second time, it's really calm. <laughs> well, two techniques that I, I tell you do work. But the other thing, I think, is is you've got to listen as well and, and show that you're listening mm-hmm. and sometimes agree with bit. I mean, I remember taking the complete error of a, an angry parent by saying, you're absolutely right. That shouldn't happen in our school. And then I'm going, well, 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 that's the first thing I'm going to find out is if it did happen. Yeah. And then we'll go from there. Yeah. Did, somebody, was, told, somebody told me, Stan, that also after these meetings, it's quite good a couple of days later to contact the parent and just yeah. to sort of have this conversation that says, you know, did you feel as though the matter was resolved? Have you noticed things are getting better? You know, I think that's also sort of, yeah. so it's not, not sealed off at that meeting. There's a reflection period for you as a leader as well. Not John to come back in for round two. What's interesting there, but I think I think what you said there is really, really smart. I think that's a very good thing to do. But don't you think that it's got it's got tougher in the last couple of years yeah. with families and with and, and with parents and parents who previously wouldn't wouldn't have ever criticized or looked for a row, but are, are so frustrated by the, the the way that life is dealing them a hand at the yes. moment that there is no figure of authority they can shout at other than a head teacher. And I've, and certainly in the schools and the trust that I'm continuing to work with, the stories of parents just getting completely irrationally angry yeah. because it's, it's the last straw or the final straw. And I think that's a really big burden for heads to cope with. And we certainly through coaching and mentoring work that I do, it comes up all the time about, you know, how we have to do I should definitely say Dan's two, two points there because I think they're really good ones. But yeah. I think... I think the world has changed a little bit in the last couple of years and it's reflected in, you know, poorer attendance and poorer behaviour. And I think heads are in the front line about the moment. It's, I think it's become quite tough. Yeah, I, I think also dealing with sort of complaints as a governor, which I've done more of the last two years than, than ever before, it's um, a, a level of professional parents that are complaining. It's not. It's not the angry... Uh, parent whose son's had a fight or whatever. It's it's you know we have long debates and and letter writing over uh, absence through going on holiday and yeah. You know. I, I, I think I think though, and I'm, I'm not we're not going to talk about the COVID inquiry today, um, but I think there's something here, isn't there, around authority figures who I think in the past people looked at as being sort of highly professional considered all of this is continually chipping away all the stories around the backstories about what actually is happening and i think that's that's eroded the level of confidence in the in the word professional you know and uh, i think that there's a sort of we need to get back to a much more sort of civil sort of hopefully you know more considered government you know in terms of the way that things are done and that doesn't mean to say that everything's right but actually, these people have a greater level of confidence in the decision-making process. I think this has chipped away quite a lot in terms of people's feelings about people in authority, whatever position they're in. We need more ministers for common sense. At that point, we move on. Um, yeah. That's David. another podcast, then. <laughs> David, what's caught your eye this week? 
So this feels a bit like Room 101, doesn't it? Um, my, 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 the first thing I put into Room 101 for what I've caught my eye this week is minimum service level agreements, um, which uh, I suspect will never, ever see the light of day. But it's an opportunity for the Secretary of State, I think, to posture and, and show that she's being tough and to impress number 10. Um, because I think she's still a little bit on the naughty step after a swearing uh, spree. And I think she just wants to show that now Suella Bravum has disappeared from cabinet, she, she can now be the ones that takes on the trendy lefty loony teachers. And so I think there's an element of that. But the, the insulting thing about it for me is that there have always been something called minimum service level agreements. We never called it that. But when, when there is strike action or when there is a snow day or there is even though the pandemic's not a bad example of it. Heads and schools bent over backwards to make sure the vulnerable kids were supported, that children in exam year groups had the teaching that they needed before we even thought about online learning, which is another another part of the solution. And so it really bothers me that, that, that what I see is the breakdown in trust and confidence between the government and, and schools and probably people in the NHS would say the same thing there. But in schools in particular, this doesn't help that. Uh, it, it just breaks it down even further. And it just feels to me that it's an example of um, you know, should there be a change of government, there'll be a leadership race. I've no doubt about that. And I'm sure Gillian Keegan will see herself as a candidate. And this is this is her positioning herself around that. So I think from my point of view, I've always believed, um, and I think I probably always will, that there is a right to take industrial action. Um, you know, if you if you feel that's not right. And there's another debate about what steps could you take to avoid that? Yes. Um, and that's another, that's another political question, I suppose. But the the idea being that the answer to industrial action is minimum service level agreements, which puts heads at conflict with their staff, which is why I think legally that's, that, that's suspect. But the idea that, that, that you or I, if we were still, or Stan, we were still doing our headships, would have to suddenly sit down with a spreadsheet and work out who can go on strike and who can't is just absurd. Um, and it's just another example, I think, of how this government has just run out of steam where their education is concerned. They're, they're picking the wrong fights. So the prime minister picks a fight on the marbles. Um, the Secretary of State picks a fight with, with teachers because she's lost fights with unions, so she's going straight in the heads. And I think that, that for me, it, it, it isn't going to happen because by the time it, there are appeals in the High Court, we'll be through the election and whatever will, will, will be. But I think I'm really worried about the fact that, you know, te- people who are thinking about teaching as a career and, and reading social media, reading the Ofsted inquiry into what happened at Cavisham Primary, reading yeah. this kind of stuff about minimum service level agreements, going, do you know what? I'm not sure this is the career for me. Um, and, 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 and it's just another erosion of public confidence in what I think is one of the greatest public sector services we provide. Yeah, I agree. I, agree. Um, I just think thinking of times when, you know, if you take snow days, for example, uh, my school's <clears throat> uh, out in the hills and most of the parents were commuting into Manchester and the like. So if it snowed during the day, there would be this mad panic of parents putting themselves at risk trying yeah. to get back to school. And I sent a letter out to say, look, I will stay in school until every child has been yeah. met and gone. Even if it's nine o'clock at night, I will still be there. Do not put yourself at risk. Yeah. Because there was there was this theory that schools would just close and you'd send the children out into the snow to, to look after themselves. And it, yeah. it was just never going to happen because... Nobody does that. I even had, and this is probably a, going back to a long time ago, teachers from other schools who couldn't get to their schools turning up on the doorstep and saying, can I help? Uh, you yeah. know, I think I think there was a rule at some point that you should do that, but 
it was it was fantastic that somebody came and said, "Can I help?" at nine o'clock yeah. in the morning when some of my staff hadn't got in. It was, uh, but it, that's part of being a, well for me. That's part of being a teacher. That's how you show your professionalism, isn't it? You know, your commitment to your community. You know, the, the desire to teach children. It doesn't matter who they are. You know, you, you but that leadership in the community is vital, isn't it? I mean, you know, you know, we saw it in the pandemic, but 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 that is for me how you demonstrate. Um, the position that you hold within the community that you serve, and, and of course, yeah. delivering education and standards are very important. Of course, it's vital, but actually, there's a there's a much there's a more, I think, equally important service that the head teachers provide that probably in some communities back in the day would have been provided maybe by the church, um, mm. but as but as that's slightly been eroded in some parts of the country. You know, yes, we're an authority figure, and therefore it's easy to have a pop at us. But at the same time, actually, people do look to, to head teachers for exactly the way the stand that you describe it to to be that support. I mean, I'm going back to the point you made a moment ago about you know that, that follow up call when you've had a row with a parent. Yeah. Often, what happens in that follow up call is not the incident that sparked it all off, but something else they're really worried and upset about that probably drove that that behaviour. Yes. Yeah. And 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 if you really want to be a, a credible leader in the public sector these days, you have to put yourself in those positions. I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what's caught my eye this week? Um, well, there's some research out, um, just for people who are not familiar um, with how bursaries work, but in order to try and attract uh, particular teachers in particular subjects, um, the government has undertaken two sort of approaches. One has been give sort of quite a large lump sum at the beginning, um, somewhere in the region of 25, 27,000 pounds for a maths uh, uh, teacher. Um, and, the, and then actually that draws them in. Um, and there's another approach, which is make that amount smaller at the beginning. And then at the third and fifth year, give a top up. So they in effect get a bonus for sticking at it. And so the researchers found that giving, as you can imagine, giving a big sum of money at the beginning draws people in, but it's not so good at keeping them. Having a smaller amount of money at the beginning doesn't draw quite so many people in, but does keep more for longer. And it's really you know, where we sit in terms of bursaries. And uh, it, 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 I think the point for me when I was looking at this was, <laughs> I'm not sure how I would feel as a sort of mid-career teacher in a science department, shall we say, a maths department, and thinking, yeah, what, there's a 24-year-old over there. They've rocked up and they're actually earning more than I am. How, you know, and I'm really struggling. You know, I've probably got to the point where I might have got married and might have got the mortgage. We might have just got children. And here's a sort of, uh, I'm not caricaturing them, but somebody who's got, hasn't quite got those responsibilities, hasn't got anywhere near the level of experience, may not be delivering the quality lessons that I'm delivering, but actually they're, they're 27,000 pounds more than me. I don't know how you cope with that. And I think... For me, you know, there needs to be a look at what is the whole package. The bursary itself is probably saying there's something wrong with the overall package around what how attractive is teaching. End of story. And what uh, do yeah. I say as a primary year six teacher who teaches maths and science yes. at, the, at the same level as the year seven teacher does in the high school and no thought of any remuneration particularly for, no. for me? No, because it, it's in primary PE a little bit of history, I think, where the the targets are actually being generally met, but most other subjects we're we're way down. I mean, have you got a take on that, David? Yeah, I, 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 
I, I agree with you around this. I mean, the history of this that I saw when I was working in DFE was, and you, rem- you guys will remember this because you were up in the Northwest, there was a real school of thought was that we'll, we'll get Teach First people who live in London to go and do missionary work in the North. Yes. Um, and, and surprise, <clears throat> surprise, they didn't want to do it because actually their families, their relationships, their, their life was, was somewhere else. Um, and so that didn't work. And then we, we got into this idea of that big slug of money at the beginning. I mean, there are a number of problems with it. One is... Um, that cost is ongoing. It's, it isn't that you pay them 30 grand in year one and then you, they go back to a normal salary. So the, the school has got to bear the cost of that forever as long as that teacher is there. So it's yeah. it's an ongoing financial commitment. And we know the teacher pays is an interesting interesting area of development for the government anyway. But also, um, you see your point about the experienced teacher. So that experienced teacher in their mid-30s, who's now maybe have a salary that's not that competitive anymore, is now being asked to mentor that young teacher because they're not very good. Yeah. And and so the whole thing, uh, teaching for me is a team sport, always has been. And you have to think about the way in which you develop that team. And so for me, I like the idea of there being a package of which money might be part of it. Um, um, professional development or a master's course is a, a, a sabbatical of some sort. I think there's something that every five years, for every five years of service, there is an offer that is made to people irrespective of the stage of their careers that they're at. You know, they... I think at the other end of the spectrum, you know, I think I read um, 40,000 teachers left the profession last academic year pre-retirement. 40,000, you know, that's, 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 that's more people than you're going to see at Everton this weekend. And so, so it, it really bothers me a little bit about, about how we, we're putting all our eggs in the basket of recruitment. We're not thinking enough about retention because they're two sides of the same coin. You know, we have a reten- we have a recruitment problem because we have a retention problem. And so I, I think the idea of how do you reward experienced teachers? And yes, that might be money. It might be a one-off payment. But I think there are other ways that we can do that as well. Um, and for me, a secondment doesn't have to be like a year or six months. It, it, it could be half a term to yeah. go and do something that you're really interested in exploring. But we feel we seem to have very binary binary view to this. And, and you're right, the, the data suggests that I'll take my bursary, whatever it might be, but there's no expectation that if I quit after two years, I have to give it back. No. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing about, about yeah. longer-term teachers was um, there's a tweet this week where somebody put, you know, I've met a lot of people now who've left the profession. None of them have mentioned the pay as the reason. Yeah. It, it's workload, it's it's lack of respect, it, it's it's expectations beyond uh, what I can do that, that's driven them out of the profession. And I, I'm with you, David, I think a sabbatical, even for uh, a month, you know, a month away to, to do some study or to, to go and visit education in another country or something like that would, would be a fantastic reward. There, there is also, Stan, a complete lack of flexibility I mean, I, the, the numbers of, and, and again, the numbers of women leaving during their 30s and 40s, um, because whatever the reasons are at home, but actually it feels as though the burden of family life hasn't shifted in some families to the extent that they can actually keep all of these plates spinning at the same time. And, yeah. and actually there's a lack of consideration around, you know, the sort of uh, health issues that women are going through during that period. There's a lack of understanding, I think, around you know, some leaders about, you know, what the pressures of actually bringing up a family and doing more than a full-time job, you know, and some people might say, well, you know, actually, uh, perhaps people shouldn't be working full-time. Yeah, well, let, let's have that consideration, you know, but actually, you're sort of, there's there's a certain sort of, people seem, some hate leaders seem stuck 
in and particularly you know it, I, I, I come from a primary background i can hear i can hear primary head teachers yeah and i can feel it with people that i know who are simply not aware of the fact that they're so close to losing a member of staff they've had for 10 years yeah. who's bloody good parents respect and you're losing them because you can't find a solution for why she needs to come in late on a Thursday or or leave early on a Friday. You know, there's just no, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, and and it, it's all wrapped up in that kind of conversation about flexible working, isn't it? And if you think yeah. about, I think about my, my my lads. You know, they're in their late twenties, early thirties now. They they no longer have to go to work in in a place. They do it for two or three days a week, and they work at home for two day, three days a week. And, and if you're thinking about someone coming out of uni, 23, 24, 25 years old, they, they, they have an expectation that they can work in a different way. And I don't think that's easy to do in school. So the, for me, the antidote in schools is we look at flexible working across a career, not, not here right now today, and, and, and recognize that as you go through different phases over your life, whether it's your family circumstances or, or your, your buy, as you say, you're buying a, buying a home or you want a break, a career break or you want, to, you want to do a condensed day or whatever, whatever else it might be, we need to be open to that. Otherwise, we are going to lose good people without a shadow of a doubt. And, and, and that's not 20 years down the line. That's happening right now. Yes. Yeah, I think there's still a, an element in some school leaders that I've met who say, well, we had to stick through, you know. Yeah. In my day, I did, you know, we, we, we muddled through at times like that. Well, you know, times are slightly different now. Mm, yeah, they are. And, you know, are you saying what you muddled through was the right way to do it? No, uh, I, I, think sure. I, I find it interesting the way that, and I, I, I'm doing, well, I've got a, a, another month to work in Blackpool, but about a year ago, I reviewed all the vacancies, it, all the adverts for Blackpool teaching jobs. And uh, something stuck in my mind about how would, I was thinking of it as a London teacher going to Blackpool. And, and what is there? What, what are you offering me that makes me want to come? And, and actually, I was quite disappointed with a number of the adverts. I can say this because I've, I've, I've told people, you know, just some of them are just not considering, you know, how can we make the post more attractive? And, and actually, the benefits, the flexibility is all part of that attraction, isn't it? If you're sort of coming from the south to the north, um, you know, most of them had no reference to a relocation package. None of them spoke about, you know, settling in. I mean, one of the things for me was, you know, uh, a loan facility for rentals. You know, so if you're getting a flat, you know, you might not have the money for a six month deposit. You know, we'll give you that. You know, all of this stuff is just for me is central to how you can attract people to a place that's difficult to attract people. When when they were, when that debate about that particular policy was being discussed, I remember chairing several round tables to try to understand what the resistance was to it. And one of the things that, that, that people said that, that they would make them think about it would be was if they could spend four nights a week uh, at home, i.e. back in the south, which, which by definition meant we, you would teach in the north Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday or Monday through Thursday. And because the critical mass of the week would mean you wouldn't be away from your family or your friends or whatever. But, the, but they would consider doing that with, with the appropriate help with the rent or with accommodation or whatever it, whatever it might be. And, and when that was presented to to ministers, but also to you know some of the some of the leaders in those areas, it was well we can't timetable that. Yeah, well, I don't like I don't like split classes. I don't you know we know they've got to be there five days a week. And thinking, These people are beginning to say yes, they'll think about it, and you're just putting up another barrier. 
yeah, yeah. I have back to Shackleton now, Frank. And his advert, which was basically, you'll probably die. (laughs) How how many applied? It was oversubscribed (laughs) with people applying. We're coming to a close, um, but actually, I'm keen just to sort of talk about uh, something I think dear to our hearts. Actually, um, I've got a, I started playing the guitar again when I was 60. I still have my lessons every two weeks. A big shout out to Chris Hemingway, who's a fantastic guitar teacher. Um, and I know Stan, it's in your family with Paul and everything. You know, Paul's uh, a qualified music teacher. Although he works now as a as a TA, he's 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 just sent me a video yesterday of of the band, the school band that he's uh, he's organising, and you you, I, I, you listen to it and you think that's progress from last week. <laughs> but, also, but just to say, also it's Paul that composed the theme music to to this to this piece. Um, but David, you know, you mentioned before you were a music uh, specialist. Mm. So, I mean, where are we with music in in schools? Yeah, I think I, I, I worry about it, I must admit, because I think I see more and more secondary schools. I'll, I'll talk through a secondary perspective for a moment, although I think my comments are equally applicable in primary. But I think in secondary, the squeeze on the curriculum around academic EBAC subjects has meant that music has become a subject which has been either relegated to a carousel model. We'll do a, we'll do a rotor every six weeks with other subjects or, or not there at all. Or it's an extracurricular thing, which, which you know, schools, it's a nice to have. But there is no doubt in my mind that if you want strong bands, to use um, Stan's example a moment ago, you have to have it in the curriculum. You have to, you have to like that spark in the classroom, in a, in a, in a music curriculum. Um, and I, and I, I just wish we would, and I think, I think a Labour government would look this way at the arts, because I've heard Keir Starmer talk about the, the impact of the arts on the economy and, 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 and the potential of that. But I do think we need to revisit uh, the role of music in schools and, 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 and how we go back to a time when there was an entitlement of a music curriculum all year for all year groups. And I, I think the, the, the thing that, that sparked in my mind um, that, that, that view uh, about that was, um, so I, I, had a, I had a birthday this week and, and Claire, my wife, bought me a beautiful print of one of my favourite paintings, which is called Norham Castle Sunrise by, by Turner. And and the, one of the reasons why I loved it was I used it uh, in a GCSE composition project back in the 1980s as a stimulus. And then I wrote a book on GCSE music and it's in there. So I've always felt a real affinity to it. But it, the, the, the point I'm, I wanted to get to was, um, I, so I put a photograph of the printout and I, and, I, and I reminded on the tweet that, you know, I, I taught that I'd written this book in 1987, blah, blah, blah. And I had a tweet back from a person who was in, was doing GCSE with me in the 80s, who, who's got to be either late 40s or 50s now, who remembered the project. They remembered, oh, wow. the, they remembered the postcards, because I bought a pack of postcards of the, of the, of the painting, and we used this as, as a stimulus for a composition exercise. Um, and, and he remembered it. And it just, I, it just made me think, when I think about my memories of school, I think about sports, I think about music, I don't think about assessment for learning. I don't think about a starter activity that somebody did with me. And, and, and the experiences that the arts often give you are ones which stay with you forever. And he, he was a good example of that. So, you know, it just made me think about, you know, we, if we lose music from our curriculum, I don't think we'll ever get it back because it's a lot easier to lose something than to start something up. And so I just hope that we haven't reached the point where it's too late and that um, over the next five to 10 years, there's a resurgence of the role of music in schools. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what's in my head? I don't know if these chats just 
triggers something that I remember uh, a year or so ago um, being drawn to a, a, a short video of a school, primary school, where the um, a teacher decided that they were going to introduce music and it was across across all year groups. It was going to have uh, instrumental work as well. So she created an orchestra. And uh, so you had a group of sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 11 year olds in this orchestra. And uh, I have to say, when they when they played their first piece, it sounded awful. It sounded awful. But what was so wonderful was that the, all the parents at the end of the piece all stood up and applauded. Yeah. You know, and there's something, isn't there? I, I remember playing the euphonium to us in a, in a school orchestra as the head. And, but there's a, you know, that, you know, we said before, that sense of being in that team and not wanting to let anybody else down in the team yeah. and you're having to concentrate because you don't want to be the one making the bum note on your own. You know, all of that stuff is part of what you're bringing. To people the- want to belong somewhere, don't they? P- people want to feel they belong to a tribe, to use that, that awful phrase. Yeah. And sometimes in schools, you don't fit in, the, you're not in a cool group, you're not a sporty kid. You know, you're academically okay, but you find your niche in something like drama or music or, or, or dance or wherever it might be. And if we, don't, if we block that avenue off, that's another niche of belonging that some children will miss out on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember the, uh, the peripatetic teacher who used to come in and do music in my school who, who said, you know, why don't you get a band together? And, and I said, well, we've got like four brass players, uh, a, a flautist, and 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 she said, but how many of your you know it's middle class school? How many of your children have music outside of school? And I kind of said, I, I honestly I don't know. So we 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 just sent a flyer out to say if your child plays a musical instrument and wants to be part of the band, uh, this this uh, peripatetic teacher agreed she would come in after school to to put it together. And suddenly I had keyboards, I had drums, I had all sorts of. And we had, and as you say, Frank, the first two closed doors, if you listen to it through two closed doors, it's definitely. (laughs) I mean, that that school band ended up with 30 30 odd children in it. uh, And it played me out when I I left Headship. The band played played me out. And I was really pleased about that. Really, you know, considering I think I bought the first cornet. A mm. uh, governor bought a cornet, and and we we got a trombone from somewhere, and that's that's how it started four or five years previously, and to have this pleasant noise, let's say pleasant sound, happening was fantastic. Yeah, I I I, I do remember going to a, a primary school in Leeds that was linked into um, the university's orchestra, um, and they they. Were, you know, the head teacher was absolutely adamant every child in that school was going to have a chance. You know, it wasn't just you're going to get the violin, you know, because the violin might not be your instrument, but you're going to have a chance to find an instrument. And, and the, you know, the, after just two or three years, you know, what was being developed in that school was amazing. And a big shout out as well to uh, the uh, Liverpool Orchestra that's working very closely with um, some of the primary schools in the city to ensure that every child has the chance, you know, because I mean, I, I my second age was quite a nice area, you know, similar sort of situation, Stan, but it's, mm. it's, it's the kids who haven't got those opportunities at home. We need to be really offering this to. Uh, I think the some school are going to um, Manchester next week, I think with the, the, the 
Royal Phil as choirs singing, which again is another opportunity. My heart sinks for the schools though who don't either don't get invited or at that level that, that they push going to something like that because those are the children again that, that I think probably extremely talented. Their chance of life might be through music or through art or through and the doors closed yeah. in age nine and ten. Well, we've had Kevin Edward Turner, uh, a student from my primary school, who had a very troubled upbringing, um, and he uh, had a week working in a residency with uh, the Northern Ballet Theatre Company. So now he runs um, a, a dance company in Manchester. That was his outlet. You know, he is incredibly grateful. He's been on here, he's shown that gratitude for the opportunity we gave him. It's a, it's it's humbling, really, when you think right. it's just a week. You know, you think I've changed somebody's life, and, and his and his wife, and his two children. You know, um, from where he was in Partington's, where he is now. You know, it just makes you. It's heartwarming. It's it's the reason why you teach, isn't it? If the music hubs come to an end, which is a risk, uh, in the Arts Council. You know, I know in where I was, because the music service came under my portfolio, there's a warehouse full of musical instruments. <laughs> and I literally mean a warehouse really? full. Uh, mainly keyboards, hundreds of keyboards, because nobody wants to store them in school. But I just wonder, will we see uh, sort of a sharing out of those things? If that's the same in, in all the hubs, will we get the musical instruments Back into children's hands, but that'd be a start, wouldn't it? It would, <laughs> yeah, it would. Um, uh, Dave, before we go, before we finish, uh, you're a trustee of Centrepoint, aren't you? Mm. Um, and uh, one of the things we do, we don't pay David for this, but because he's generous in giving his time, we do um, offer a donation to Centrepoint. Um, but busy time of the year for the charity, yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic charity. I've been a trustee for six years now. Um, and I, I absolutely love the work. The, I mean, the mission of the charity is to eradicate youth homelessness for 16 to 25 year olds. Um, and there are center point foyers, uh, accommodating up to about 1300 young people every night of the year. Um, obviously in London, but also in Bradford, in Doncaster, in Barnsley, in Sunderland, in Manchester. And, um, and it's, it's just, the the horror i suppose of how homelessness has increased in the last couple of years um you know the the roots into homeless are usually um domestic breakdown um substance abuse you'd expect um in in some cities it's gang stuff as well um but these are these are 16 to 25 year olds who've all got a future have all got a potential um and they just need so much help so yeah so it, it's a it's a piece of work that that, uh, that i really enjoy doing um and and you know any anybody who knows anything about center point if, if there's an opportunity for very very small donations on the website which uh i think i think i remember seeing that it's about 140 quid a year to to sponsor a study room but it's something like 17 pound a year to to provide some other facilities so we, you know yes of course there are really big donors to whom center point are incredibly grateful for the work men of the gear but also it's a it's a very it, Every penny counts. Is, is basically my message around it. So, so uh, it's a wonderful organisation, and I care deeply about it, and, uh, and 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 care deeply about the challenge that we face with it. So, thank you for giving me the chance to say that. No, that's great. Um, well, thank I'll you. I'll put the details at the end of the. Yeah, I'll put a slide on with, link. Uh, yeah. with the link. Cheers, uh, guys. Yeah, well, thank you very much, David. Love to have Thanks, you back. It's, it's a. It, I mean, 
just somebody like you coming on the chat makes such a uh, uh, it, it lifts us. It really does. So thank you. Uh, I, I love it. I, I I love the fact that we don't talk about all the usual stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thanks everybody. We have got um, uh, a colleague uh, who's been on before next week, uh, Samina Chowdhury. Uh, who has written a book about uh, equitable education. So Samina's coming back. And then we have one final week before Christmas. So uh, all being well, we'll see you all next week. So thank you very much. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks, David. Bye.